On this Sunday, MPs hold an emergency meeting tomorrow here in Ottawa over the Desjardins data breach affecting nearly 3 million Canadians and businesses. We'll ask Public Safety Committee Chair John McKay, what are Ottawa's next steps? Then it's barbecue time for MPs, but this summer, federal parties are grilling each other. Just 99 days to election, and our panel weighs in on a campaign that is heating up. Plus our summer series, Hill Hobbies. This week we test the waters of Lake Simcoe with Conservative MPs Scott Davidson and Alex Nuttall. It's Sunday, July the 14th. I'm Eric Sorensen and this is the West Block. Well, close to 3 million Canadians and businesses had their social insurance numbers and other personal data stolen last month in one of the largest security breaches Canada has seen. The Federal Privacy Commission and its Quebec equivalent are investigating the breach with Montreal-based Desjardins. Tomorrow, MPs on the Public Safety Committee come back to Ottawa for an emergency meeting to find out how it happened and what Ottawa should do about it. Joining us now from Toronto is the chair of that committee, Liberal John McKay. Uh, Mr. McKay, welcome. You're coming back here in the middle of July. Why the urgency? Well, this is a significant issue to literally millions of people. 2.7 million people in Quebec primarily have uh, had their data compromised. Um, and that data is now um, out in the, uh, how should I say, cybersphere. And um, from some media reports is now in the dark web. So this is a very significant issue, and um, I think it's absolutely appropriate that uh, parliamentarians return and uh, make at least some effort to uh, understand the issue and uh, hear the concerns and possibly what can be done about it. You know, it's, uh, it's important not just to Desjardins members, but all Canadians, as you say, all of our data is out in, the, is in cyberspace. What specifically do you think your committee and the government must and can do to, uh, to address these kinds of breaches? Well, I would like to hear the evidence first and then uh, make the recommendations afterwards. But we did spend six months as a committee on this very issue, namely uh, uh, cybersecurity and financial uh, relationships. And um, uh, what you get to learn after six months of doing this is that this is extraordinarily complicated. And uh, what you also get to learn is that this is moving at a lightning pace. So I take some comfort in the fact that under C-59, the government has set up um, uh, an entity called Cybersecurity or Cybersecurity Task Force. And it is to do the interface between industry, financial services, and the government of Canada, because no entity, um, no matter how large, whether it's a Royal Bank or TD or any uh, organization you care to mention, can do its own cybersecurity on its own. So um, this is, uh, if you will, almost a uh, classic example, a uh, working example of um, whether um, the various interfaces that have been set up under C-59 uh, can be uh, stood up and can work. Can you reassure the Desjardins members that uh, if, if their information is used in some fraudulent way, there will be assistance for them? I think there will be assistance for them. I don't know the form of assistance. 
I think the first line is uh, Desjardins and what they can do for their own members. Um, but even the resources, the formidable resources of Desjardins uh, and of the regulators uh, will be taxed. And, um, and I think this is where the interface between um, all levels of regulators and governments uh, needs to come into play, hopefully through this cyber center, uh, and um, get to the, uh, the bottom of the, uh, the issue. On the face of it, it's a rogue employee. However, there may well be uh, further implications uh, beyond it simply being a rogue employee, especially now that, according to media reports, it's out. Uh, the, the, in effect, the information has been sold and, um, and it is now in the dark web. You need to hear from Desjardins officials, of course. Um, also intelligence officials and other security no. officials, I think you need to hear from. Is there any sense at this stage whether this data has been used for illicit purposes yet? Only on the basis of media reports, and that's, that's um, at this stage, kind of premature speculation. However, we do, as, a, as part of our witness list on Monday, um, have, have the RCMP and the um, Cybersecurity Centre coming before us to talk about uh, uh, what they can talk about in the public domain, shall we say, uh, along with Desjardins, along with other um, entities from the federal government. Um, so this is, if you will, a preliminary meeting um, where it goes from there, um, I would be in the realm of speculation to, to say. The suggestion's been made that uh, perhaps the Desjardins members should be issued new uh, social insurance numbers. We, we think of those numbers as being ours for life. It shows how serious this is. Andrew Shearer has said maybe that should be looked at. Is that something to be considered? It may be something to be considered, but um, it, it also may be a... Um, uh, a, re a response uh, which is not well considered. I don't know what the uh, officials will say, but I think what part of what they might say is that the solution that's being pro uh, proposed will actually create more problems than solve the, uh, the current problem. Um, in addition, it, it is a very formidable undertaking to replace the uh, SIN numbers for upwards possibly of 2.9 million people. All right, John McKay, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you, Eric. And up next, as the summer barbecue circuit heats up for party leaders and MPs, we'll take the political temperature of an election campaign that unofficially is already warming up. Welcome back. Party leaders are hitting the barbecue circuit, testing their messages, bringing on new candidates for the election in October. And under the summer sun and before the heat of the official campaign, how are they doing? Joining us now are two senior political watchers, Susan Delacourt, bureau chief for the Toronto Star, and our own chief political correspondent, David Aiken. Thanks to you both for being here. 99 days till election day. 99. You can sing along. <laughs> um, but the horse race is on. They're not galloping, but the horse race is on. The polls show it's very tight in a couple of spots, but right at the top, roughly 35-35, give or take, for the Liberals and the Conservatives. Susan, what do you make of a race where 35 could actually be a winning number this time around? It's very different. I keep comparing it to four years ago, you know, and I think it's a good comparison to make because... We thought at the outset of the election one thing was going to happen, <clears throat> that the NDP was going to be 
uh, actually either government or official opposition again, and they were third. So I, and liberals entered that election, distant, distant third. Uh, now they're the government. So um, that tells me that people are, I think, retreating back into mm -hmm. wait and see mode. I think uh, when you saw the heat of parliament, when it's been a bad, bad winter for, uh, for Trudeau and his team, uh, you saw that reflected in the polls. But I think as attention has sort of gone out to the larger country and people are chilling out and enjoying summer, I think you're seeing the eight, the race evening up a bit. Certainly you see it, uh, the Liberals marked this weekend a 100-day countdown. They actually made it official. They did a bunch of events on Saturday uh, to mark that. And you see the different tone in Trudeau. You see him, he's, he's definitely moving into campaign mode. He'd seemed a little off his game in May and June, but I think you see that the campaign in, in all but officially has started. It, it seems different to me, though, from four years ago, David, because back then you had people wondering, are we really going to elect an NDP leader? Are we really going to elect a brand new mm -hmm. liberal leader? Now it's a little more settled, it looks like. It looks like the liberal with the leader that the Canadians now know against the traditional alternative, the Conservatives. Yeah, I think that is one of the key differences is I think the next Prime Minister is going to be from the blue team or the red team. I don't think anybody thinks the guy running the orange team has any hope being the Prime Minister. I think we're probably on the same page there. Um, but I think also what is a likely outcome, and again, campaigns matter, they sure did in 2015 and many others we've covered, uh, is a minority government is quite a possibility. And so all the leaders are going to, I think, have to respond to, to that. And one of, the, one of the leaders who we're going to be paying a lot more attention to is Elizabeth May and the Green Party. And Elizabeth is in southern Ontario next week campaigning in Barrie, I think, Guelph, places where Greens have shown some strength. And there is a reasonable possibility that the Greens could come back with enough seats, uh, more than two that they now have, you know, maybe eight, nine, 12 would be official party status, yep. that they could make a difference in a minority parliament. So, I mean, for <laughs> those of us in our business, this is going to be a fun summer because there's all sorts of possibilities. And uh, Canadians have a lot more choice and are willing to make choices. I think that's interesting, too. Canadians are telling pollsters, I'm willing to do something I've never done before. I might vote for the Green or, or the People's Party of Canada. Remember Max Bernier? <laughs> yeah. So it's going to be a neat summer. And yet you could have then progressives split three, four different ways, uh, Susan. I remember 20 years ago, <clears throat> every day there was a headline in the Globe or the National Post about got to unite the right, got to unite right, the right. Yes, yeah. And uh, well, now you've got this split amongst progressives and they could deliver a conservative government again in the mid-30s. I've been talking to strategists from those parties, all of them, uh, and they say that uh, they're mindful of the fact that vote splits could elect conservatives in ridings. That's a very hard thing to go and knock on somebody's door and say, let me explain the math to you. If you vote <laughs> this way, this could happen. I think, um, although Canadians, I think, are capable of strategic voting, I, and I, th I do think there are going to be ridings in Canada where that split among the votes is going to change some things. Uh, I forget, there were a lot of narrow margins in the... Um, 
in the 2015 campaign too. It's a very hard thing for Canadians themselves to get their mind, wrap their minds around too. And yet that's one of, I think, the great virtues for the Liberals to get Stephen Guibault. And, and folks in English Canada are going to hear more about this guy. French Canada knows him pretty well. Uh, he's been a, a environmental activist most of his career. He's definitely you put him in the star candidate category for yep. Montreal for the Liberals to get. And he's dead set against pipelines. And yet there he is. He, last week he was standing there with Justin Trudeau, hands up, um, we're going to fight. And Guibault's line is, listen, folks, we're about to lose all the gains we've made. That's why he's signing up for the Liberals and not with the Democrats, not with Greens. He's saying, folks, we've got to sign up with these or we'll lose all the uh, gains we made on what's most important to him on the climate change file. In a nutshell, David, what, uh, what, what baggage are the Liberals carrying this time that they sure didn't have four years ago? Well, it's, it's things they promised four years ago and didn't do would be the first thing, and that's electoral reform. When we talk about the progressives, that's the you know, number one in the thing. Their, their, their work on climate change in terms of hitting actual targets, they've talked it all up, and of course they, they want it, they believe in it, they think it's the number one issue, but there's a lot of progressives that say you really didn't do that well, You've just finally got to a carbon tax. It's going to take a while. So those are the baggage. There is, I think, on the progressive side, uh, that and the SNC Lavalin, I think, really disappointed the progressive side. Those would be the three big bags they're carrying. It's it's measuring Justin Trudeau against the Justin Trudeau he was in 2015. Mm. I think he knows that. I went to a teachers. Uh, conference that he spoke at this week in Ottawa where he w he was talking a bit about this but remember in 2015 he was the youngest of the party leaders mm -hmm. uh, and he had youth and optimism he's gonna be uh, except for Elizabeth May um, he's gonna be the oldest uh, Andrew Shear and uh, Jagmeet Singh are just turning 40 and Justin Trudeau is closer to 50 so a lot of the Justin Trudeau that people were electing in 2015 is not the Justin Trudeau he is now a guy with experience yeah. people are gonna to have to measure that up did he become cynical in power what did he do with all those sunny ways and the optimism we're, we're, we're accustomed to having a third party being the NDP for decades now mm -hmm. David are we possibly seeing just in a nutshell uh, could they be disappearing almost in this election there have been I think I'm trying to think I know uh, Frank Raves at Ecos has measured the Greens in third on a national horse race poll. Most other pollsters still have the Greens in fourth place. But the fact that we're talking about this, again, I think is giving voters permission to consider the idea of voting Green. They're the official opposition in PEI. They hold the balance of power in BC. They got seats in the New Brunswick legislature, the Ontario legislature, and they just won the, that by-election federally in Nanaimo. That is called momentum for people to think about Green. And I think that Jagmeet Singh, uh, in the last week. What's he been talking about? Climate policy. I think they're very keenly aware that the NDP are keenly aware that they're vulnerable to losing some of their voters to the Greens. And final thought to you, uh, Susan. Uh, we had the Premier's meeting this past week. Not so long ago we had uh, Rachel Notley, Kathleen Wynne, Christy Clark representing Premiers for the majority of the population in Canada. And now I want to show you the picture of uh, the Premier's meeting this past week. And when you look at that, what's wrong with that picture? Well, there's been a lot of talk about this. There's a, I, I recommended, I think I might have even recommended it on this show once before, there's an excellent podcast about this called No Second Chances. It's about how women are not, women can get elected but not re-elected. Um, as First Minister in Canada, there's never been a case of a woman elected before. We were talking about 2015. Rachel Notley was head of the Premiers back then. Uh, it's... Um, I don't think the job is over yet of, um, of getting women 
safely into power. They still yes. have to be twice as good. Well, uh, we have an election this fall. We'll see if there are strides forward or backsliding as, uh, as early as this October. David, Susan, thanks very much for talking to us. Thanks, Eric. Up next, we get on board with two MPs for our summer series, Hill Hobbies. Welcome back. When Conservative MP Scott Davidson is not on Parliament Hill, his go-to place is his landing boat on Lake Simcoe. We caught up with him and fellow MP Alex Nuttall to find out why this hill hobby is more than just a hobby. Fellas, Eric. Scott, how are you? Good to see you. Good. How are you, Eric? New York Semco. This is oh, a... look at that! Such a pleasure to be here, oh. and with two MPs, and you're both from this area, but on opposite sides of the lake. Yeah, this is the riding of York Semco, which is the best riding. Sorry well, I was to gonna cut say, you the off. The good side of the lake's just over, over there. there. And you're both avid boat boaters. That's right. Well, I'm turning into an avid boater. I haven't been a boater for about ten years, so. It's uh, Scotty showing me the way again. Tell us just about this, this beast that we're on. It's almost a landing craft. These are probably uh, some of the toughest boats built in the world. And uh, we're going to be going over to uh, Chippewa's Georgine Island, First Nations today, and obviously uh, an island. I'm, a, I'm an avid fisherman uh, boater, and I love to uh, snowmobile four-wheel, and, and oftentimes, and hunt as well and oftentimes we'll put a four-wheeler on the uh, front of this if we have to go to different locations on the lake and uh, I can actually take it with me. No, it's great. We're going to have fun today and uh, get out on the lake. And you couldn't ask for better weather. Lake's calm and the sun's out. So yeah, no, this, this is a good assignment. <laughs> no, no, that's it. This is the jewel of York Simcoe. Scott, start with you. You live here, this is your place. Uh, you wanted to talk to us on a boat and uh, take a ride out here. Why was that the kind of thing you wanted to kind of talk about? I wanted to kind of give you a flavor of the riding and how important Lake Simcoe is to the riding and actually to Alex's riding as well. Um, this is the jewel of our community. I'm an outdoors person. I spent my whole life on the lake, so I thought it was an, an important thing uh, for you to see. What are your youngest memories, I guess, of being on a boat? I'm going to say as long back as I can remember. Driving a tin boat with my uncle for the first time to my dad taking me to uh, an old marina, which uh, thankfully I ended up owning for a number of years, Bonnie Boats in Jackson's Point, and actually renting a boat probably when I was five or six. What's important about the lake? The most important thing is a lot of people earn their money off the lake, number one. It's uh, for tourism dollars, it's very important to uh, York Simcoe. As well, there's over half a million people that it provides drinking water to. So it's very important that we keep the lake uh, clean. And as you know, I was recently elected um, in the by-election here, and that was one of the most important things that I wanted to see in our environmental policy and I worked hard to get it and thanks to Alex uh, for helping. See, It's in our environmental policy as a pledge to bring back the Lake Simcoe cleanup fund. Yeah, you're a little bit newer to, uh, to I guess, boating, but still a few years, but you're living in this area now. How are you struck by the significance of sort of just living in the lake area? It's beautiful. The quality of life here is, uh, is unmatched. 
you know, you, your proximity to Toronto, your proximity to, um, you know, agriculture and, and uh, uh, the snow hills in the winter and all the things that you can do in this area. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. And so where do you fellas come down then on a, on a question like climate change and the policies that are necessary to preserve something like this? Well, I think this spoke to um, the, the Lake Simcoe cleanup fund that the previous Conservative government uh, had out that unfortunately the Liberals cancelled. It's boots on the ground climate change policy. There was there was over 200 groups that benefited mm -hmm. from that fund. There was over 72,000 uh, uh, trees done. There was fish stocking that was done. There was invasive species. And, and we've really brought the lake back, but there's so much more work to be done. And that's why it's important to have boots on the ground environmental policy as well as the national policy as well. The reality is the dollars were spent, they were spent wisely. For every one dollar that was spent by uh, the federal government, there was another four dollars added from uh, private sector, uh, from municipal, provincial right. and county governments. Alex, you're, uh, <clears throat> you're finishing a rather brief career in Parliament, so let me just first ask you why, why are you getting out so soon? You know, th there's lots of time to have a career in politics. Okay and uh, there's not lots of time to spend time with my kids. A family is important to you as well, and living in this area, and your wife is First Nations, and uh, we're in a First Nations land here on this island. That's right. Um, speak to sort of the issues that are important for her and for them. There, there's transportation issues uh, that they face over here. So healthcare is always an issue. So there's always federal uh, programs that are needed to help out all First Nations, not just this one. As well, this, this island's been on a boiled water advisory for a number of years, which to me, you know, had to change. And luckily now the federal government has stepped up and helped them with the new water plant. Unfortunately, the funding for that is only doing half of the island. You have five ridings around the lake. That's right. Uh, the last election was a swing election towards the Liberals, and yet all five ridings remain conservative. What is it about the area that kind of has a, a, a conservative bent. We're a collection of hard-working people, hard-working farmers, very much rural. And, and I think a lot of people always have the notion when you talk to them at the doors, York Simcoe hasn't got their fair share of federal infrastructure dollars. Right, we have we have uh, internet uh, issues, which I'm sure you do as well, and and I think we need uh, more federal dollars spent up uh, on rural ridings uh, for things like that. I think we have to look at them as highways now, rural internet, much like you got Bell Telephone and Hydro. People are entitled to high-speed internet. So, Alex, as conservative as this area is, you've gone to Ottawa. You spent some time there you've come away with a kind of a, a, a more a, a kind of a balanced view of how you see politics and partisanship. I went to Ottawa probably the most partisan <laughs> you could get and uh, I'm walking away far less partisan. As a conservative I have a set of beliefs. So do the other parties. So do the people in the other parties and they care about their writings. There's definitely some key differences but there is a lot we agree on and we just never get the opportunity to talk about that. So just take me turn back onto the boat for a second. Uh, you've grown up with it, so what is it that I guess it, it means to you just to be out on the water? It's a breath of fresh air. You know what, it's a nice time to just get out in the boat, especially with family, friends like Alex, and just a time to, you know, clean your head and, and just a time to, uh, to think. It gives you uh, freedom and, and I love this lake. I've been on it my whole life and it'll always be dear to my heart. Scott, Alex, thanks very much for talking to us. It was, it was a pleasure having you, and we'd love to have you back again. That's our show for this week. From Lake Simcoe, for the West Block, I'm Eric Sorensen. Thanks for tuning in.